We are back in the 13 realms. It has been far too long. We have two chapters for you this episode, and we have actor and the voiceover actor for the 13 realms podcast, Ken Dickinson, to talk about his journey through acting and even give a little bit of advice for all the actors out there. And with that, let's jump right in. Chapter 7, The First Step After somber farewells and much clasping of forearms on the steps of the Burgomaster's house, Grog retrieved Blade Blunter from a saddlebag strapped to Thetham's ram and set out on foot with Broughton and Major Hammerbuckle. Halfway up the gravel path, he turned and looked back at the house. Thetham was barking orders at a group of king's guards and the burgomaster was eating a chicken leg. The king was staring directly at Grog. When their eyes met, the king gave Grog a slow, regal wave, which seemed to convey the words, Don't screw this up, Mao Grog. After leaving the estate, Broughton and the major walked briskly through the streets of Longdale, talking to one another in low, serious voices. Grog trailed behind, staggering and weaving all over the cobblestones. Keep up, Grog! Broughton shouted back at him. Grog quickened his pace like a scolded child, and wished that he hadn't indulged quite so enthusiastically in the Burgomaster's whiskey and weed supplies. He could not feel his headache any more, but... Then again, he couldn't feel much of anything else either. Thankfully, it was not long before Major Hammerbuckle was beating on the door of a two-story timber house with one of his huge fists. Crawdis! the Major shouted at the grimy upstairs window. Crawdis, where are you? There was the sound of a bolt being drawn back, and the door swung slowly open. A pair of glowing amber eyes looked out at them from the gloom. <laughs> I'm here, the dwarf said in a deep rumbling voice. No need to knock my door down. Broughton and the Major made their way inside. Grog stood rooted to the spot, swaying slightly and staring stupidly at the dwarf named Crawdis. He had a dark grey beard and rich brown skin. Around his shoulders was a fine, light blue cloak, studded with a glittering amethyst gem. It was the eyes which stopped Grog in his tracks, though. They blazed with an internal fire, and in this moment, they were blazing directly at Grog. Are you, you coming in? Crodis asked. Course I am. Grog strode forward as confidently as he could, and almost managed to walk a straight line to the door. Crawdis raised his bushy eyebrows. <sighs> you all right? Injured in the battle last night, Grog said gravely, still a little unsteady on the feet. Crawdis's eyes rose a little higher, disappearing beneath the rim of his golden helm. Grog didn't bother taking a front to Crawdis's incredulity. He smelled like a distillery, and he knew it. He stepped into the house and followed the sound of Broughton's voice to a small, cozy parlor, where there was a crackling fire and a couple of dwarves busily packing supplies into sturdy leather and canvas backpacks. Ah, here he is, Broughton said. Broughton swept his non-broken arm towards Grog. Here's your fearless guide, Maugrog Ironheart, longtime member of the Northern Mountain Battalion and former general of the High King's armies. The dwarves ceased their preparations long enough to look Grog up and down, pull dubious disappointed faces, and go back to their work. Grog glared at Broughton and was contemplating sidling up to him and whispering a few choice expletives. 
when a female voice spoke from the staircase above him. You're telling me that this is the dwarf who supposedly marched alone into the Shadow Forest and rescued a family kidnapped by an entire tribe of centaurs. Rog turned, ready to insist that he was that dwarf. But when his eyes fell upon the Kavina advancing slowly down the staircase, all he could manage was an odd exhale. You're telling me, the Kavina continued, that this is General Ironheart, the dwarf who threw a spear a hundred paces and skewered the heart of Vrazul, the swamp ogre? It had been more like twenty paces, but Grog had never actively prevented the exaggerated version of the story from spreading. You're telling me? The Kaviner reached the bottom of the stairs and walked up to Grog until they were almost eye to eye. That this is Grog the Unkillable, who charged naked into battle against an army of fire imps in the Burning Peaks, and lived to tell the tale? I was wearing my chainmail shirt, Grog said. They surprised us in the middle of the night, you see, and I had no pants on because... Grog trailed off, suddenly realising that he had no desire to tell the rest of that tale to the extraordinary-looking warrior standing in front of him. She was a Kavina of war. The right side of her face was painted white. The left was grey, with the addition of a deep red circle around her eye. Grog had no idea how many Kavina held this rare and admirable rank. But across the entire thirteen realms, it couldn't have been more than four or five. If that wasn't enough to make an impression, her left eye was green, and her right was a piercing blue. Grog, Broughton said, coming to stand next to the Kavina. This is Tarion Slate Chisel of Realm Six. She was here last night for the telling, and a bloody good thing she was, too. She's a sight to behold in battle, and I don't think I'd be here today if it wasn't for her. Which means you wouldn't either. She's agreed, at my request, to accompany you into the mountains and keep you safe until you reach the Faithbound. Oh, Grog tried to think of something dignified and profound to say, but found himself withering under the intense green and blue of Terrian's irises. That, that's good. Who headed up the mountains like that? Terrian asked gesturing at Grog's ragged night pants and thin brown tunic. Dressed like a beggar and smelling like a tavern keeper's rag. Well, no. I mean, I've got Blade Blunder. That's my chainmail. And I had a nice mace called Arse Ripper. But I lost that last night, and... Why don't you come with me, General? Crawdis said, his voice so low that Grog felt it in his chest. I'll get you kitted out. Make it quick, barked Major Hammerbuckle. I want us on the move in ten minutes. Crawdis took Grog upstairs to his bedchamber and wordlessly set about finding him some travelling gear. The grey woolen shirt, brown leather breeches and green travelling cloak that Crawdis presented to Grog were all of excellent quality. However, he could tell just by looking at them that they were going to be extremely snug. Weapon? Crawdis asked. If you got one to spare, that'd be great. Crawdis opened a large wooden cupboard. Mounted inside it was a remarkable collection of daggers, swords, axes, and maces. Oh, is that all you got? Grog asked with a smile. Crawdis didn't smile back. Grog cleared his throat awkwardly and approached the small arsenal. He grabbed one of the hatchets and gave it a couple of swings. It felt heavy in his sweaty, slightly trembling hand. Balance it off a bit on that one, he said, shaking his head sadly and placing it back on its custom-crafted rack. Oh, these short swords look good, though. He took one of the blades and pretended to squint expertly along its length 
whilst deciding whether he could carry a pair of them up a mountainside. Yes, a finely smithed weapon, he said, satisfied with the weight. Cronus pulled open a large drawer to the left of the weapon rack and picked out a belt and a pair of stiff leather scabbards. I'll repay your generosity someday, Drug said, taking the latest of Crodus's offerings. I promise. You can repay it, Crodus said as he crossed the room, by getting us safely and quickly to the faith bow. At the top of the staircase, he turned and fixed Grog with his burning eyes. I'll leave you to get changed. The faintest hint of a grin tugged at the corner of the somber dwarf's mouth as he looked back and forth between Grog and the clothes he'd laid out on the bed. Mm, good luck. Grog stripped down to his tattered undergarments and began trying to squeeze into the traveling clothes. It soon became evident, however, that Crodus's well wishes had not been sufficient to bestow him with luck. It required an exhausting amount of tugging, jumping, heaving, and grunting, just to get the breeches on. The woolen shirt wasn't much easier, and even Blade Blunter took a good deal of convincing before it would make its way down over his belly. Beards of the ancient ones, I have come fat, Grog panted as he reached for the traveling cloak. Thankfully, that fell over his shoulders without an issue, and the soft leather boots fit well enough. He strapped on the belt and scabbards, then picked up the pair of swords. A familiar and not unpleasant sensation swept over him as he slid the weapons home with a satisfying clunk. He hadn't been properly dressed and equipped for adventure and combat in well over a year. He couldn't say that he felt comfortable in this moment, but he felt... something. Ironheart! came Major Hammerbuckle's roaring voice from downstairs. What the fuck are you doing up there? It's time to leave! Grog made his way downstairs. As he entered the parlour, the faint wisps of something that had arisen in him when he'd finished dressing, were blasted away by a gale of laughter. Major Hammerbuckle was laughing. Some bastard dwarf and titanium chainmail that Grog hadn't met yet was laughing and pointing at Grog's uncomfortably tight breeches. Terrian was at least hiding her laughter behind her hand. Even Broughton and Crodus were smirking. Don't know what you're all laughing at, said Grog. Everything fits perfect. Major Hammerbuckle wiped a tear from his eye. <laughs> oh, I should want to help us. You're going to be all right climbing mountains like that? Probably not. Grog dropped all humor from his voice. Maybe I shouldn't go. Keep your beard on, Malgrog, Broughton said, stepping in front of the Major. Some of the realm's finest warriors are in this room but that won't help any of them find their way to the Faithbound. Right, Major? Right. The Major straightened his azure cap. Sorry, Malgrog. Okay, everyone, let's get going. As Terrian and the gathered dwarves filed out of the room, Broughton pulled Grog aside. Farewell, then, old friend, and good luck. Yeah, farewell, you bastard, Grog said giving Broughton a good-natured punch to the chest. Thanks again for roping me into this mess. We're all in a mess, Grog. The whole of the Thirteen Realms are in a mess. Which means you're in one too, whether you like it or not. I know, I know. Are you sure that you do? Broughton asked, his dark eyes boring into Grog. Are you really aware of how important this mission is? I'm aware. Thrandir's tit, Broughton. I don't need a big staring speech or anything. I'm going, aren't I? But which version of you is going? Grug frowned. This version. What are you talking about? I'm trying to penetrate the layers of ale-soaked fat, self-loathing and guilt that you've wrapped yourself up in this last year. 
I'm trying to get through to the version of you that's going to take this seriously and realize that this is your opportunity to help save the kingdoms, but also maybe save yourself. Fine, great, I'm off to save the world and myself. Bloody fantastic. See you when I get back. Grug turned and headed for the door. Strength and fortitude, old friend. Broughton called after him. Ah, yeah, yeah. Grug mumbled, waving a floppy hand in Broughton's general direction. Strength and bloody fortitude to you too, old pal. Try not to die. The sun was setting in the west, and the streets of Longdale were falling into shadow when Grog stepped onto Crodus's doormat and looked up the street at the already departing group of warriors and heroes. Major Hammerbuckle had taken the lead. Behind him were Terrian and the dwarf in the titanium chainmail. Crodus and a young blonde dwarf brought up the rear. All of them were carrying large backpacks. All of them were striding off at a pace that made Grog wince. Okay, he said, blowing out a long breath of resignation. Here we go, then. He extended a booted foot, let it fall onto the grey cobbles, and felt a little twinge of pain shoot up his calf from the back of his ankle. Oh, this is going to be fucking great, this is, he growled. Then he pulled his cloak around himself, let out a hearty belch, and trotted off to catch up with the rest of the party. Chapter 8 The Hall of Legends The quickest and most direct way for Grog and his companions to begin an ascent into the mountains north of Longdale was to climb the colossal staircase which led to the Hall of Legends. Having rock-hewn stairs to climb made things easier, but, as Grog had been explaining since about the third step, that wasn't the same as easy. <sighs> it's my injuries, he panted to the young blonde dwarf, who sat waiting for him about halfway up. That's the problem. The blonde dwarf, who'd introduced himself to Grog as Bimrock, said nothing. He just watched Grog approach with a thoroughly unimpressed expression on his face and took a sip from a large copper water canister. It wasn't a total lie. Grog's head and buttock were beginning to hurt again. But he knew this didn't really explain why he was drenched in sweat or wheezing like a lungpox-ridden dwarf on his deathbed. Bimrock offered the water canister to Grog, who held up a declining hand. No thanks, lad. Never touch the stuff. So, he placed a hand on his chest and took a couple of heaving breaths. <sighs> the others have gone on ahead, eh? Bimrock followed Grog's gaze up the staircase. The others were distant shapes in the last red rays of sunlight, which lanced across the southern slope of the mountain. The Major wanted to look in on the Hall of Legends, Bimrock said. Apparently, there's a few families taking refuge there. He asked me to wait for you. Make sure you made it up all right. He's so caring, Grog said, before doubling over and having a quick coughing fit. Bimrock hoisted his massive backpack and settled it over his shoulders. Let's go then, he turned and began powering up the stairs. Grog hadn't been given a backpack, but hadn't bothered questioning the others about this, as it wasn't something he'd been particularly keen to draw attention to. He just presumed that the rest of the group was carrying everything he might need, probably on account of his serious injuries. Right behind you, lad, Grog said, despite the fact that Bimrock was already ten steps ahead of him. By the time Grog reached the top of the gigantic staircase, his legs felt like they'd been run over by an oxen-drawn wagon, and he was puffing harder than a blacksmith's bellows. He stood, hunched over, with his hands on his knees, gasping for air 
and taking in the scene in front of him. There was a lot of activity around the entrance to the Hall of Legends. Dozens of dwarves and Kavina, including those in Grog's party, were busily constructing a wall of stone just inside the open doors. Children were playing on the flat concourse in front of the hall, and yet more dwarves were working on the mountain slope just above the entrance, filling some kind of timber enclosure with small boulders. Grug shuffled towards the vast oak doors, trying carefully not to step on children. "'You're just in time,' said Major Hammerbuckle, barely glancing at Grog as he passed a rock the size of a watermelon up to awaiting Crawdis with a single hand. "'I was about to send Bimrock to go and drag you up here by your beard.' "'What is all this about?' Grog waved a hand towards the construction. "'There should be a whole battalion of reinforcements arriving tomorrow from Realm One,' the Major said, dusting his hands off and stepping towards Grog. Their job is to escort all the refugees, all the families, anyone that wants to go and seek shelter in the High King's domain. But until then, he jerked a thumb towards the cavernous torchlit hall. This lot just have to survive one more night, and there's no better place to hole up than here. Grug peered through the dwarf-sized gap in the thick, towering wall of stone, and a heavy breath that had nothing to do with climbing a staircase up a mountain rushed past his lips. There were scores of families inside, maybe even several hundred. They were clumped and clustered together. Meals were being cooked in iron pots over glowing fires. More children were scampering about, and a group of Kavina were building a secondary barricade of rocks and long spears behind the main stone wall. Phew, we'll be here tonight, Grug said. We'll stay and help defend this place. Major Hammerbuckle shook his head. Believe me, I want to, but I have my orders from King Brewblade. We're to push on as far and as fast as possible. We can't get caught up in the fighting. Our mission is too important. With all due respect to the king, Grug said, not taking his eyes off the families inside the hall. That's some cowardly bullshit. Crodus dropped down from his place on the stone wall and glared at Major Hammerbuckle with his glowing amber eyes. I agree with the general. We should stay. Three things, the major said as he rounded on Crawdis. One, he's not a fucking general no more. He's just a regular dwarf. Two, when Brown asked you to go on this quest, you agreed to follow my orders. And three, the major looked back and forth between Grog and Crawdis, and all the anger seemed to drain out of his eyes. I know why turning your back and walking away from, from everyone here would be particularly unpalatable for you. But try and remember that there are tens of thousands of children across the Thirteen Realms whose lives may very well depend on the success of our mission. We need the faith-bound Crodus. And if we're going to get them, we need to go now. Grog watched Crodus Grog watched Crodus work his jaw. The tendons in his neck flexed and strained. And then he relaxed, his blazing eyes falling downcast to the rubble-covered floor. As you say. He grunted. Then he pushed past Grog and strode out onto the concourse. Okay, Maugrog, the major said. When your hands from here on out, you be ready to lead us further up the mountain in five minutes, yeah? Before Grog could answer, the Major turned and started calling for the rest of the party to abandon their wall-building efforts. Well, well, came a voice from behind Grog. I heard you were on your way up here, but I didn't believe it. Grog turned, saw the dwarf that had spoken, and felt like his insides had turned to water. He staggered a little and closed his eyes, but there was no unseeing the white-bearded old dwarf who was limping towards him, leaning heavily on a stick and leading a little Kavina girl across the concourse towards him with his other hand. Oh, no, 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 no! Grog shouted inside his mind. He knew that the Ancient Ones had every right to want to punish him, 
But this latest kick to the gonads was definite proof that those ancient bastards truly hated his guts. Look here, Gretin, said the old dwarf, pointing his makeshift walking stick squarely at Grog's chest. This is the dwarf I've told you so much about. This is Malgrog Ironheart. We were in the army together a long time. But after I left, he went on to become a general. In fact, he was the general who bravely led your parents into the fog, along with thousands of other soldiers. Grog had stared down plague wolves and gone toe-to-toe with a frost drake. But he'd never in his life wanted to hide from anyone or anything as much as he wanted to hide away from the mousy little Kavina who was peeking out shyly from behind her grandfather's ebony-striped cloak. Grolhart, I... Grog's mouth had gone so dry that his words were little more than a croaky whisper. It's good to see you. Eh, thankfully, the general here made it out alive. Grohart said, I guess that your parents were... Grohart swallowed hard. Just too slow to make their way out of the fog. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Grog screamed the words inside his head. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He imagined himself dropping to his knees in front of the little Kavina and bursting into tears. Instead, he bowled his fists, ground his teeth together, and waited for the torture to end. I've been looking after little Gretchen here ever since her parents passed, Grohet said, limping a little closer to Grog. I do my best, but we sure do miss Mummy and Daddy. Don't we, Gretchen? Gretchen nodded, never taking her glistening eyes off Grog. What happened to your leg? Grog asked, seeing the blood-stained bandages above Grolhat's left knee, and absolutely desperate to change the subject. Uh, last night was pretty wild, Grohat said with a shrug. Hopefully you managed to stay clear of it. No, I didn't. I went into town to help, actually. See, Gretin? The old dwarf pointed at Grog with mock awe on his face. Just like I said, a very brave dwarf. Hot anger rose in Grog's chest, and it was good. It burned away some of the guilt and pain. As much as I'm loving this little chat, Grog said, I'm afraid I have to go now. Me and some others are about to head deep into the northern mountains. We're going to bring back the Faithbound. We're going to help save the Thirteen Realms. Oh, sounds exciting, Grohat said, removing his burgundy cap and scratching his bald head. I'll be sealed off inside the Hall of Legends with little Gretchen here, praying that our defenses hold against the undead hordes. Well, ancient ones protect you then. He began turning away, but Grohat's gnarled old hand shot out like a striking snake and grabbed a handful of Grog's cape and mail shirt. I know what happened, the old dwarf hissed through clenched teeth. I know your secret. I know why Owen sent my son to his death. Grog tried to pull away, but Grohat held him fast. Look at her! Grohat inclined his head towards his granddaughter. Every time you close your eyes from now on, I want you to see this little orphan's face. I already do! Grog shouted. Then he sagged, dropping to his knees, his palms pressed against his forehead. I see her, Grohat, he said, his voice thick and trembling. Her and a thousand others, and all their parents. I see them in my dreams. I see them when I'm awake. I see them. I I hear them. I... Grog looked up at the old dwarf's stern face. 
if what you want is a life of absolute misery for me, then you should rejoice, because that's what I have. Your misery won't bring my son back, Grohead said. Then he let go of Grog's cloak and extended his hand to his granddaughter. Let's go, Gretchen. Let's get into the hall. Grog was still on his knees, so as Gretchen walked past him, her face passed close by his. Grog looked fleetingly into her eyes and saw... Not anger. Maybe pity. Maybe just sadness. Grandfather? The Kavina's sweet little voice came from a few paces behind Grog. He doesn't seem like a bad dwarf. Grog closed his eyes. He doesn't seem like a bad dwarf. Come on, child. Grohat snapped. The footsteps grew more distant. But Grog stayed kneeling on the stone concourse, letting the words echo over and over again in his head. He doesn't seem like a bad dwarf. What the fuck are you doing, Ironheart? Grog looked over his shoulder. Major Hammerbuckle was striding towards him, followed by the rest of the party. Just saying a little prayer, Grog said, getting to his feet and wiping the wetness from his eyes as subtly as he could. Don't you always say a good prayer to the Ancient Ones before embarking on a big quest? I don't have time for prayers, the Major said. There'll be enough light for at least an hour or two of marching. Bimrock! The young blonde dwarf ambled forward and held his huge backpack out towards Grog. Generous of you wanting to share, said Grog. But you can hold on to it, lad. I'm still dealing with some injuries, you know. He's not going any further said the Major. He carried it up the stairs for you, but this is as far as he goes. This is your pack now, Malgrog. Grog glared at Major Hammerbuckle, but he reached out and grabbed the pack without a word. No excuses? Terrian said, arching an eyebrow. No complaints? Grog settled the pack across his shoulders. It was even heavier than it looked, and one of the straps fell right over the bruise he'd gotten from an undead bone club the night before. I don't have time for excuses, he said. Then he gave Bimrock a farewell nod and struck out towards the barely visible trail, which started just above the great doors of the Hall of Legends and led up into the mountains beyond. He doesn't seem like a bad dwarf. These words sustained Grog as he led the others up the flank of the mountain. They picked him up when he stumbled over rocks and low shrubs in the deep twilight. They were louder than the rasping of his breath and the pounding of his heart. They kept him going for well over an hour, and finally, he stopped and looked out over the moonlit valley far below. The others stopped too, dropping their packs as Grog had and looking back the way they'd come. No one spoke. They all just stood and listened to the distant sound that was drifting up to them from the town of Longdale. It was the sound of a horn, blowing long and urgent, stabbing icicles of dread into the very marrow of Grog's bones. Hmm. What do we do? Crodus asked eventually, his orange eyes burning in the darkness. Shall we go back? No, Grog said. We have to go on. He picked up his pack, turned, and resumed his exhausting trek of the mountainside. Come on, he called to the others. Follow me. Wow, wow, wow. Another great couple chapters in the story. And this episode, we have a very special guest. We have Ken Dickerson. He is the voiceover actor for the podcast. And he is here to talk about his background, some of the things that he has going on in the content realm, and everything that he's doing in a creative sense. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. 
Yeah, we get we got to talk about this voice. Like, where, <laughs> where did this voice come from? Because I get a lot of comments about my voice and, and where I got it. But I'm sure you probably get it much more than I do. Is this a voice that you were born with? Or this, is this a trained voice that you've developed over the years? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the voice you're currently hearing is pretty much the closest to my natural voice I can come to these days. But ever since I was a kid, my parents read books to me. And mm. uh, I don't I don't know if your parents ever did this, but they they always did the goofy, silly little accents, which were terrible. They were, they were absolutely <laughs> awful. <laughs> right. Yeah. My, my favorite was there was this there's this book about a French mouse named I want to say Anatoly, and it is a, a, a little mouse who samples cheese. <laughs> it was adorable. Yeah. And um, my parents just did the worst French accents you could ever imagine. It was, it was and ever since then, I just, I love doing voices. So mm. my friends, I would go up to random people. And I just started talking at a Scottish accent for no good reason. <laughs> there was about two weeks in college when my roommates thought I really was Scottish. oh man that is awesome is is that really where the the like the acting bug came from or did that come later on and you just felt like that was uh just a a parlor trick oh the act oh man uh so when i was six i was in a church play you know little little kids obviously aren't going to be given any real role so i was part of the choir the kid that was cast as the lead got in detention so he uh in school so his parents decided to pull him out of the play well, they're a week away from production and they couldn't figure out what was going on. I was friends with, uh, or my parents were friends with the, the choir director and they knew that I could read very, very well. So they said, all right, we'll just put all the lines in a big book and Kenny can just read it straight from, from the script and it'll, that'll just be it. Well, my parents gave me a little, little audio cassette and I just listened to some other pre-recording of the play. And in about two days of sleep learning, I had already memorized everything. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and I, I got the I got the bug from then on out. Jeez. So just that that happenstance situation. And you're like, you know what? Let's just keep keep it rolling. Oh, yeah. And also, I'm an only child. So I absolutely crave attention. <laughs> oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so so t- tell us the story. So you, you, you did this thing. You got bit by the bug and mm-hmm. you just kept continue to do it. What were some of the, the challenges, some of the obstacles that you ran into along the way? And, and, and where do you feel like you are right now? Oh, goodness. Uh, challenges and obstacles. Well, okay. So school plays, of course, happened. came and went. I, didn't, I couldn't actually get into real, quote unquote, drama until my freshman year. But for some reason, my school, all of the drama kids were also children of the teachers. So I had to, I had to fight against the fact that the main lead roles always went to those kids. So I, I got the funny roles. I got I got the side roles, the stuff that most people wouldn't really deliberately try out for. And that gave me a love for character acting rather than being the main lead. You know, leads leads in most plays and, and movies tend to be pretty boring. You know, oh, it's the everyman that people just want to insert themselves into and think that they're that person. Ah, but what about the comic relief? Everyone mm. loves the comic relief. Right. So that's where that's my my main passion is, is to be the more offbeat kind of characters. Right, right. And and do you feel like when you go into these different offbeat characters, you're pulling from different parts of your own personality, maybe even the personalities of people you've known or characters you've seen in the past? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty quirky off the wall kind of person myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not too difficult to try and find aspects of my personality to blend into different roles. Uh, I am an actor in Los Angeles. So doing this is, you know, I've had three auditions this week and two voiceovers outside of Kingdom of Dwarves that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. And so this this has become this has become my uh, my job, my passion, the craft that I work towards. I'm glad you just used the word craft hmm. because I, I'm definitely a, a crafts person. Uh, my mom used to say, like, you got to you got to develop. You got to work on your craft. And hmm. it, it it just uh, uh, is a word that resonates with me. And, and I take that with me into podcasting and media and all that stuff. So when you're talking about developing your own personal craft, like what were some of the the, the things that you did that were unique to you in developing your ability to create characters, dive into different personalities, and even like little quirks. Like, take take us through how do you practice that craft? Oh, interesting question. Okay, every I feel like every actor has to do two things. They have to love television or movies, something like that. 
but I think they also have to read. And I know a lot of actors don't. And I think that's honestly a real detriment to them because mm. they're not getting a chance to, to percolate new characters that are written complexly and, and given life that you can't put into television. Right. I, I think I, I, I've always been a voracious reader. Like I think I mentioned earlier, my parents read to me from an early age. So I was, I was reading, I was reading chapter books by the time I was five years old. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of passion, that, that enjoyment of storytelling and, and how to, how to entertain people by using, you know, the, the, the standard, well, Campbell's hero's journey or something like that has always resonated with me. You know, you'll, you'll hear all after actors often talk about, Oh, the craft, I'm, right. I'm a slave over blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just a bunch of, you know, nonsense really it's it's yeah. it's trying to try to make themselves sound more important than they are actors are just storytellers that's all we are and it's just, you know the only difference is maybe maybe a mom reading to her child doesn't get paid for it but we do and mm -hmm. we're certainly no more important than she is right if anything we're significantly less important <laughs> <laughs> right yeah 100 percent. and i double double click into the uh reading aspect i think reading is one of the most important things that we can do as humans mm. i'm sure you can get your information many other ways but i think reading really is fun fundamental uh speaking of, of stories and reading what is that book that you would say made the biggest impact on you as an actor oh as an actor okay Okay, so three books. One, I'm a Christian, so the Bible, foremost, mm -hmm. my most in, in, uh, instrumental book in my development as a human being. Uh, second, when I was 13 years old, maybe a little bit older, I read Ender's Game by Orson Scott. Yeah, great oh, book. Oh, my goodness. Great book. Ah, blew me away. That was the book that made me want to go into the military, which is hilarious because if you read that book, it's counter to the point of the whole series. It, yeah, 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 it is. <laughs> Uh, but obviously I, I didn't, uh, I was uh, turned down for medical reasons, so I didn't actually get into the military, but, um, it also gave me that kind of drive, that feeling of, Ooh, maybe I am special, which honestly, the listeners out there, don't, don't fall into the trap that you're special. That's, that's a, that's a good way to set yourself <laughs> up for failure later on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but finally, when it comes to acting, I would say there's a book called audition, by I want to say his name is Shermer. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I think I lent it to someone. Mm. It's basically just a. It's a pretty short book. It's about 150 pages, all about how to act and how to prepare for a role. And it is absolutely incredible. I used to I used to be an acting coach, and my first the first lesson would always be all right. Buy this book, mm. uh, and we'd go over it and we'd we'd explore how to act by using the this these particular methods wow yeah so so lesson one go read that book then come back with questions <laughs> exactly exactly no, actors should always be asking questions because it, it's all about learning how to be another person right so when when you're working with a, a director and the director has uh very much a, a a scene in mind and maybe even the behaviors in mind but you hear stories about sometimes the the improv behaviors and lines are some of the most iconic in some in, in all of sim, cinema. Where, where do you fall in, in that line? Do you try to to adhere to the vision of the director more? Uh, do you try to inject a little bit of your own creativity, or are you somewhere in between? I've noticed in modern cinema, especially uh, directors, don't feel super confident in their screenwriting, and so they will add more opportunities for actors to improvise. Personally. I don't think there are many good improvisation actors out there. Mm. Uh, Robin Williams, of course, was the greatest of them all. And oh, he, crazy. Oh, my goodness. That man was a genius. I, uh, even as a kid, like just watching him perform, I was like, how is he doing that? Like, how, oh, yeah. how do you even think that fast? And you're, you're thinking so fast and it's complex as it's deep. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. He, he really was something incredible. Oh, absolutely. Well, it helped that he had did lots of cocaine <laughs> yeah for sure yeah that that definitely that definitely could help that definitely could help <laughs> <laughs> once again kids don't do drugs yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for whatever reason i think it's you know the general dumbing down of the population itself uh actors aren't they aren't as good as robin williams is i've worked with a lot that are absolutely terrible at it but they think they're geniuses i, I think you have to be you have to have a certain not just a certain level of not just a certain level of intelligence, but you also have to have a certain level of confidence that is 
different than arrogance. It's, it's got to be, it's got to be, so the difference in confidence and arrogance, arrogance often is confidence that is not founded on a stable ground and platform. Right. Whereas you had men like Robin Williams, who geniuses, hilarious, any confidence they ever had was founded on talent. But you listen to them or you talk to them or you, you see interviews about them and it's like he was not actually that confident of man. He was always very insecure. Mm. And in part, I think that uh, that definitely contributed to the reason he eventually took his life. Right. Um, but also his illness. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I've gone on a tangent. I don't remember. What no, I, 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 th- <laughs> I think that's I think that's a good point to bring up because as as performers, right, I, I might do a podcast, you know, I do web series. And of course, I, I'm on camera. I'm definitely saying things as myself. I'm saying my my own personal lines, even if they're not written down. But it is a performance. What you see on camera isn't always the truth. Mm. Uh, I remember I did this once and I was like, I was hopping on for a virtual event and I was being interviewed and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go and be authentically me. I honestly feel like just kind of relaxing and having a conversation. I don't want to perform. And when it went out, I mean, everyone saw a very low energy Chris and Mm. You know, people were marking what what happened. It seems like he's in a bad mood, or or whoa, what's going on here? And and it realized to me that even in this this realm of performing as myself, like I have to be on if mm-hmm. people expect a certain Chris to show up. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, I, I knew. Oh, sorry, I'll continue. Continue. The only thing I was going to add to that is, but then compound that as an actor playing other characters. Now you're really not seeing who someone is because you you see them on a, a movie that you love you think that they really act or behave that way but mm. but they don't behind that you could there could be a really sad a very insecure very spiteful person and and mm. we see this happy go lucky comedic actor not saying that this was Robin Williams but just in sure. general uh, i mean how, how do you think actors out there really balance things like mental health with being able to perform. <laughs> Most of us don't. <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely should. Uh, yeah, you mentioned spiteful and stuff like that. And yeah, definitely a lot of us actors are exceedingly, not exceedingly, many of us are quite covetous because mm-hmm. we look at, you know, uh, I myself certainly am because I look at people that I consider, you know, maybe they haven't been in the industry as long as I have, or maybe they haven't worked as hard as I have. And I think, Hey, why, why did they get that role? Why, why didn't I, I'm a better actor than they are. And it's, it's poisonous for actors to think that way because there are so many factors that go into why some person was cast and you weren't that trying to, trying to reverse engineer why someone got cast and you weren't is, is going to drive you insane. Right. Um, but because our entire job relies on multiple times a week, if not day, someone saying, you're not good enough for whatever reason, that's, that's going to wear on you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like imagine, imagine you're, um, you're constantly trying to find that special someone and you're constantly asking ladies out, you know, maybe at a bar, maybe at work, maybe at church, wherever you, wherever you find people. Uh, and you're just constantly being shot down over and over and over again. You know, maybe at first you just start to think, ah, it's fine. There's plenty of fish in the sea. But after a little bit of time, eventually you're going to start wondering, man, what's wrong with me? Right. And that's, that's uh, a lot of problem with actors I've noticed is that the longer they've been in this industry without any real success, the more likely they are to be uh, not just self-conscious, but also self-hating, self-effacing. So how does someone go into acting uh, with, with any type of, of strength? Because, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I think it is uh, a lot of things that have to, to culminate. It has to be the, the level of the actor has to be at the right place at the right time and Perhaps you have to have the right look and, and maybe it's the, the right casting director for that particular role. So, I mean, all these things sort of have to be in alignment. But how does someone come into a field where you're basically saying, judge me for this role, and then they're not seeing the validation? So how does someone maintain their, their, their strength and their confidence going through something like that? And they, they just don't know what this entire industry is like just yet honestly it's a lot of delusion and uh, self-deception <laughs> mm. I, I say that with, with uh, tongue-in-cheek but there yeah. is there's a there's a reality to that tell me yeah so i mean people come to los angeles all the time or you know nowadays atlanta new york 
Louisiana, et cetera. And maybe in their little hometown, they were, they were the best. They were the best actor, actress that anyone in that town had ever seen. They come to Los Angeles. There's a million of them. Mm -hmm. And they have to have the passion, the drive, and once again, kind of the delusion that says, hey, eventually I am going to make it. Maybe not as an A-list actor, but at least as a quote-unquote working actor where I can earn forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year supporting myself doing this thing that I love. Mm -hmm. And if you don't love this craft enough to keep doing it, I mean, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna peter out. And honestly, a lot of people should. I've seen so many people waste so much of their lives that would, that would be better spent doing something else, that they would benefit better as human beings doing something else. Sometimes you have to you have to realize that your dream is okay to just be a dream. Maybe do it as a hobby or something else. But too many people get wrapped up in the idea of fame and popularity. You know, I, I can be this thing that I've always wanted to be, and they just ruin their lives here. This 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 city, this city sucks, man. Yeah, uh, and the industry is tough. It's not it's not just a matter of having good inner strength. Like I said, you got to be you got to be a little bit delusional to keep trying it. So how how does someone know like when when to hang up the the gloves right how does someone know when to say you know what this this just isn't for me because I talk about persistence all the time sure. uh, when when I do talks and things like that because persistence is important especially Absolutely. when you're learning and growing but you're right there is a, a point in which someone's just not cut out for the job I mean when you look at something like the NBA it's quite easy mm -hmm. like if I'm I'm very short and maybe I'm out of shape and not I'm uncoordinated I, my dreams of being in the NBA are probably going to be really really short they're not mm -hmm. going to be something that I just could constantly persist to do but something like acting where it's not as vi visual that you have shortcomings for what you're trying to do how does someone be able to gauge like either i'm learning or i'm just not i don't have the aptitude for this craft mm. honestly you gotta, you gotta surround yourself with friends and mentors who are going to tell you the actual truth a lot of actors because it is such a personalized field many people won't tell an actor that they're very good mm -hmm. uh you know they'll they'll tell them oh no you, you did a great job or 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 whatever and, and feed into their ego and a lot of actors, a lot of us try to surround ourselves with people that will continue to feed that ego because, I mean, come on, who doesn't want that dopamine hit of being told you did a good job? Right. But if you're going to, if you're going to be a well-balanced, successful human being, you have to surround yourself with critics. I don't, and I don't mean people that are just going to harp on you and say you're bad at what you do no matter what. I mean right. people that will give you an honest assessment of how good or how bad you are, how, how much you need to work and how much you need to you know, maybe, maybe rest, step back. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to surround yourself with honest people, then you never will. You, you, not, you not only will never succeed, but you'll also never quit. You'll constantly be in a limbo. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's the, that's the key to learning when you need to stop in this industry is finding honest friends who are, who are looking out for your best interest. I don't think you could find a better answer for that. Thank when you. you think about your your body of work, what has been your your favorite role to do, whether uh, stage, screen, or even voice? Oh goodness, my favorite role. Oh boy. Uh, okay, so villains are the most fun for most actors <laughs> 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 because we get to be somebody that you never you never would do, or never right. be do things mm -hmm. never do. And i've i've had i've had i've ran the gamut. I've uh, I've been, you know, I've been murderers. I've been, I've been, you know, most, most of my work has been in the kingdom of dwarves sort of thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, medieval stuff. Uh, right. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw any of, any of my, my publicity photos, we'll call them, uh, my headshots. Uh, I had an exceedingly long beard. I looked yeah. like Malgrog. Yeah. <laughs> I exactly. shaved back in July, but you know, <laughs> for about 12 years of my life, I, uh, I was constantly cast in Scottish roles, dwarves medieval stuff, things like that. Yep. And my favorite role to date was as a fight promoter for this little website called warrior showdown. Mm. And basically it was, it was, um, you know, death battle, death battle. It sounds familiar. Okay. Basically they, they take characters from, from popular culture and they look at their strengths and weaknesses and they put them in a computer simulated animated fight to see who would win. Right. And it's, it's fun. It's, it's cute. It's cheesy. This guy, my, my friend, did the same thing, but he took actual actors, taught them how to fight, 
and gave them characters, you know, like Link from Legend of Zelda, uh, a Viking, a gladiator, that sort of thing. And he created actual fights that uh, that would that, that were really, really interesting. It, no like, way. Hollywood quality fights. Yeah. Get out of here. Oh, yeah, it was great. And the, worst and, part, the worst part is, though, my friend was a terrible promoter. And even though he was an excellent choreographer, just brilliant and great editor, he never got the traction he needed because he could not promote himself well enough. Mm. But I mean, hey, if, you're, if your audience wants to go listen to watch some absolutely incredible fights, Warrior Showdown on YouTube, there's something like two seasons of it. It was so you got slow-mo, you got blood, you got really beautiful women, just just everything you could possibly want in a, in a fight scene. But as a fight promoter, I was never allowed to participate in the actual battles itself. I was mm-hmm. just the guy commenting on various characters. Uh, my friend would basically just turn the camera on me and say, okay, Ken, you got 30 minutes, just improvise whatever you want. And that's where I built my improvisation skills, was just saying the most random nonsense into a camera. And honestly, I wound up stretching for like three or four hours each time. My friend had so much material. <laughs> three or four hours how do you how do you do that do you just kind of like springboard from one thing to another like one thing reminds you of something else and you just keep going how, how do you develop a, an endurance for something like that that's exactly right um i i listen to myself talk and i try to bounce off of what i was mentioning and and build upon that i, I have a, obviously a broad base in, in fantasy science fiction that sort of stuff so i try to incorporate that into uh, the various fights. Um, when it came to certain characters, I'd maybe mention the historical ways in which the 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 character would fight if it was based on history, or I'd talk about the mythology behind it if it was more of a uh, pop culture character. I'd have the most bizarre, random jokes. Many of it was not kid approved. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> uh, it's it's like talking about Robin Williams. Have you heard uh, there there were four or five different edits of Mrs. Doubtfire. A G, PG, PG-13, and X-rated version. I did not know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, edit-wise, because the right. there was just all this material that Robin gave them. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, yeah. So that was my favorite role, because I got to build on my craft. I got to talk about something I was really passionate about. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. We, we got to talk about the, the projects you have going on now. Obviously, Pinkerton's Ghosts. Like, tell us what, what's really got you jazzed up and feeling super creative these days. Sure. Well, you mentioned Pinkerton's Ghosts. That's, uh, that is a supernatural detective series that I've been working on since the pandemic. Some friends of mine that are authors, they came to me and said, hey, Ken, you're a voiceover actor. You want to wanna expand and be an author as well? And I said, well, I kind of suck at that, but <laughs> sure, let's give it a shot. <laughs> And so we just each, uh, there's three of us, we each write a little 20 minute episode, it's about 3000 words. And then we just record it. So each each person records their own story. And it is it is based in this world where there is, you know, vampires, werewolves, stuff like that. And each person is based on their own little section of the United States. I'm based obviously in the West Coast, Los Angeles area. Our editor is based in St. Louis. So he does the Midwest. And one guy's over in New Jersey. And each person has their own uh, style. I'm a I'm a wizard. Our editor is kind of more of a barbarian who just burns everything. And, uh, <laughs> and the guy in Jersey, he's a bard. We accidentally became a Dungeons and Dragons uh, party. Yeah, there you go. Oh, it's been so much fun. And it's it's definitely horror. So there's lots of elements that are very scary. Um, mm. But it's it's definitely definitely been a lot of fun. I felt myself grow as an actor, editor, and author at the same time. Uh, and how do people thing. get access to to enjoy this content? Oh, we're on YouTube. We're on SoundCloud. We are on, oh goodness, something called unauthorized.tv, which is, you know, it's a, it's more of a independent platform that doesn't have to conform to YouTube's bizarre standards. And it's just Pinkerton's Ghost, P-I-N-K-E-R-T-O-N apostrophe S, G-O-H, G-H-O-S-T-S. Got it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it it will definitely drop everything down in the show notes below wherever you're listening to this. Uh, But before we go, what what is that one piece of advice that you would have for anyone out there that is looking to be an actor, whether it's on the the small screen, the big screen, the stage voiceover, they they just want to create and they want to play these zany characters that that you're so fond of? What is that one piece of advice that you would have for them? If you just want to do it as a hobby? My advice would be learn, read a lot and read aloud a lot. The more you read aloud, the more competent you're going to get at it, the better you will work with pacing, the better you'll get at creating 
little character voices. You know, if you have kids, read to your kids. That's what my parents did for me. And if you want to make a profession out of this, though, my first advice would be consider that it's really what you want to do. This is going to eat up a large chunk of your life. And, you know, if you don't succeed at it, you're going to you, you might wonder in 5, 10, 20 years whether it was worth it or not. So decide for yourself if it if it is worth potentially giving up, you know, going home on holidays, you know, seeing all the things that your friends from high school and college are doing, or maybe even postponing having a family. These are big deals. And this is a career that will absorb large chunks of your life. Is it worth it? Absolutely. I love it. But, you know, you got to decide for yourself if it is worth it. Fantastic advice, Ken. Ken, I'm going to drop all your information down in the show notes so people can find you and all the awesome content that you're doing. Again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on the mics with me today. And with that, we will see everyone next time.